Well, it's uh, great to uh, be with you all here today. Um, If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, be it in person or at home, feel free uh, to turn with me now uh, to John's Gospel. We're continuing uh, in our sermon series that we looked uh, up to Easter, and we're just continuing it to make sure we finish off John's Gospel. It's John 21, and we're just looking at the first uh, 14 verses today. So John 21. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This is this is. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, whenever we read a passage from the Gospels, a good question for us to ask is this. Why is this included? When we're reading the Gospels ourselves at home, we can ask that same question. Why is this passage included in Scripture? Well, as the last couple of verses uh, in, the, in the preceding chapter, so the couple of verses that just runs into our passage today, says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded. So he did lots of signs. So when we read an account like this, we need to ask ourselves, why this one? Out of all the things that could be recorded, why did John decide to record this one? And the answer is always twofold. On one level, it's because these accounts are historical. The Gospels are biographies. They contain eyewitness statements. The author of this Gospel is John. And John was someone who walked with Jesus throughout his three years of uh, earthly ministry. And the details that we have in this gospel are from John's memory. And did you notice the little touches that prove to us that this was penned by John's hand? In verse 6 
We don't just hear about Jesus throwing his net. He throws the net to the right side of the boat. In verse 7, Peter, before he jumps into the water, bizarrely decides to put on his cloak as opposed to take it off and, and jumps into the water. In verse 8, uh, you, you know, he says, oh, they're about 100 yards from the shore. In verse 11, they said, we caught exactly 153 large fish, and guess what? The net wasn't even torn. This detail you have is from someone's memory. It's little touches like this that show that it actually happened. Ah, I hear you say. Surely these details were added to make the claims of Jesus seem more realistic. But this is just to completely misread a historical manuscript. It's to completely misread it. You see, the practice of including detail to make fiction seem more realistic is part of modern realistic fiction. Modern realistic fiction novels add detail to make it sound more realistic. The adding of detail to fiction only really happens in the last 200 years. Back when this account was written, this was simply not a thing. Nobody ever added detail to a fiction account. When this was written, the, you only in, ever included detail if the events you were describing actually happened and you were witnesses to them. And so some people say, oh, you know, it's all symbolic. Let's look for the symbolism in this, you know, the 153 fish. Well, let me tell you, having read some commentaries, I can tell you there's probably 153 different theories on the symbolism of the 153 fish. I personally like what the commentator Don Carson says. If there's any symbolism in the 153 fish, the evangelist has hidden it well. He really, he really has. You know, when we read that there's 153 fish, probably because there were 153 fish. There was. There were fishermen, and as all fishermen do, they want to count how big their catch is, and this catch just happened to be an amazing catch of 153 fish. The detail, it's, it's, it's the details that reveal to us that the, that the written manuscripts that we have in front of us today actually happened that the resurrected Jesus really did appear to seven of his disciples after a night of unsuccessful fishing and cooked them breakfast. Nice to think of Jesus cooking you fish and bread for breakfast, isn't it? So why is this account in the Gospels? Well, on one hand, it's because it actually happened. It was something that John witnessed firsthand. He was there in a boat. He was there when it happened. And so John, when he was writing his own biography, decided to include this in his record, in his gospel. So why is it included? First hand, it's included because it happened. It's historical. It's a fact. Which, of course, raises for us all the most important question that we will ever grapple with this side of eternity. And it's this. Did Jesus physically rise from the dead? Did God interrupt the natural laws that he created when he made the universe in order to bring a dead person back to life again? And the eyewitness details in this account 
And the eyewitness details that we see in the Gospels suggest to us the answer is yes, he did. God really, physically rose Jesus from the dead. That it isn't some kind of nice metaphor, it's a historical fact which changes everything and challenges us to the core. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, what does this mean for you today? You see, many people think that, that, that faith is kind of a warm feeling inside our stomachs or a warm glow inside our hearts, but faith is actually based on information. Why this account? Well, on one hand, it's because it happened. It's historical. But the, but the Gospels are not just pieces of biography. They're not just historical facts. They also have profound meaning and significance. Each account that we read in the Gospels has been included because the author has something theologically significant to say to us through it. It's not just history, but there is something for us to learn in this passage. And there's something for us to take away from this passage which will change the way in which we live. So what is its significance? Well, let's think for a moment. What happens in this account? Well, yes, there's a miraculous catch of fish. Yes, the disciples enjoyed a breakfast with Jesus. But what actually happens? What's the arc of this account? Well, as John Stott points out, there's a movement in this passage, a movement from not recognizing Jesus to recognizing him, to not discerning Jesus, to discerning him. Let's look at just two verses here. In verse 4, we have this simple statement. Early in the morning, Jesus stood by the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. The disciples see Jesus, but they don't realize that it's him. And then towards the end of the passage, in verse 12, we find this statement. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So verse 4, they did not realize it was Jesus, to verse 12, they knew it was the Lord. So how did they come to know it was Jesus? What, how can we explain this movement from not perceiving to perceiving? What does this account teach us about how we can discern Jesus in our lives? How we can recognize the work of Jesus in our lives? How we can know Jesus more? Well, there's three characteristics that I want to draw out for us today. Three characteristics that we can look to live out if we want to know Jesus more and discern him working in our lives. And the first is this. It's humility. It's only with humble hearts that we get to see Jesus. As Jesus himself says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and yet you have revealed them to little children. You see, we often talk about finding Jesus, but the truth is we never find Jesus as if by our own studies, our own intellect, our own wisdom and learning, we get to find Jesus. Rather, God reveals 
him to us. You see, in this passage, we see that it's Jesus who takes the initiative to reveal himself to the disciples, and the same is true for us today. We can't be proud. I can't be proud of saying, oh, you know, when I was 21 years old, I found Jesus. I didn't find Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to me. In humility, I must confess that it's all to do with him. And we see this more clearly if we were to read this in the original Greek manuscripts. The word that our Bibles, the NIV translates as appeared, so Jesus appeared to his disciples, is actually more accurately translated as revealed, revealed. So in the original, in verse 1, we would read this, Jesus revealed himself. And in verse 14 we read, now this was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. Jesus deliberately reveals himself to his disciples, and he deliberately reveals himself to us today. Otherwise, we would be, as the scripture says, ever seeing, but never perceiving. We might see, but not perceive. We want hearts and eyes that perceive Jesus. And we can only come to know Jesus if he reveals himself to us. And this is a glorious truth. Jesus reveals himself to humble seekers of the truth. May we come to Jesus with a heart of humility, not claiming that we have a right to know him, but humbly asking him to show us his glory. Humility. Secondly, obedience. Jesus reveals himself to his obedient disciples. If we want to know Jesus more clearly, we need to follow him more nearly, as, uh, as the prayer of, I think it's Richard B- Bishop of Chichester once uh, prayed. If we want to know him more clearly, we need to follow him more nearly. If we want to see Jesus, we need to obey him Earlier in this gospel, we find this truth on Jesus' lips himself. Jesus explains that obedience is necessary if we want Jesus to reveal himself to us. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn back to John chapter 14 and verse 21. We read this. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him, and I will show myself to him. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and obeys them, I will show myself, I will reveal myself to them. Jesus reveals himself to his obedient disciples, and we can expect no revelation of Jesus without obedience to him. We can't expect Jesus to speak to us if we're not walking with him closely, if we're not opening our Bibles, if we're not seeking to know him. And if the disciples in our passage had not obeyed Jesus, they wouldn't have seen him. Twice in this passage, we see their obedience. First, we see it in the opening verse. First, we see it in the opening verse. They are by the Sea of Tiberias, another word for the Sea of Galilee. So why are they in Galilee? After all, they were, a few, few moments ago, in Jerusalem. 
Why did they move to Galilee? Why did they left the city and decide to go to, to Galilee? Well, it appears that they were simply obeying Jesus. If we read it, Matthew 23, verse 32, Jesus says to his disciples, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And so what do the disciples do? They leave Jerusalem, they obey Jesus' voice, and they go to Galilee. And if they had not taken Jesus at his words, Jesus would have been on the beach and they would have been stuck in Jerusalem. If they had not obeyed Jesus, they would have missed him. And we also see how the disciples' obedience gets them to see Jesus in verse 6 of our passage. For when Jesus asks them to throw their net to the right side of the boat, they actually do what he says. They don't just go, oh, you know, you don't know anything. You know, we've been, we're professional fishermen here. Leave it to us. They obey him. And it's when they cast their nets to the right that they catch this huge uh, number of fish and then the penny drops. They say to themselves, we've been here before. Verse 7, it's when they cast. Verse 6, they cast their nets. They make this catch. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. Obedience leads to them knowing Jesus, seeing Jesus. It's to his obedient followers that Jesus reveals himself. Humility, obedience, and thirdly, love. In that verse that we just read, verse 7, did you notice who it was that first recognized Jesus? Yes, it was Peter who first jumped into the water, but who was it that first recognized Jesus? It was the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was the disciple who loved Jesus. John was the first one to perceive that man on the shore was Jesus. Yes, Peter was the first to jump in, but John was the first to see. Jesus reveals himself to those who love him. And just, just the same as ourselves, isn't it? You know, who knows the, my most innermost thoughts? Who knows, uh, who knows the, the details in all of our lives? It's those that are dearest to us, isn't it? It's those that love us, that we open ourselves up to, we're vulnerable with. Jesus does the same. And so, saints, we need to be counted among Jesus' lovers. Just on our sermon series on the song of songs, haven't we? We need to be counted among Jesus' lovers. Humility, obedience, love. These are the three characteristics that we need to be growing in if we want to know Jesus, if we want to perceive him working in our lives, if we want to see him more clearly. Humility, obedience, and love. But we must also understand that each of these characteristics at its source is not really found in us. The gospel is never about us pulling, our, pulling ourselves up by our shoelaces. The gospel is always about God. And these three things are gifts from God. Because it's God who reveals himself to us. He shows himself to us, and this humbles our hearts. We say, thank you, God. I could never find you unless you reached out to me, and it humbles our hearts. And it's when we see the saving work of Jesus upon the cross, his sacrificial love for us, that in response we say, you gave your all for me, I'll give my all for you, and I will choose to say no to myself and yes to you, Jesus. I will choose to be obedient 
to you, Jesus. And it's when we, when we encounter the love of Jesus that we fall in love in response to, to, to him and to his love. As the author of this gospel would later write in his letters, 1 John, he writes this, we love because he first loved us. We love Jesus because he first loves us. This humility, this obedience, this love is not in our own strength. They are gifts from God and they are fruits of knowing Jesus. And so as uh, that, that ancient prayer would say, you know, let us seek to follow Jesus more nearly. May we be obedient to his call. May we love him more dearly with hearts of humility and love that we may see him more clearly. And so as we come into land, and at this point, I'd like to invite up uh, the band. As we come into land, I just want to share with you one more observation. You see, this account in John 21 might be seen as one of a pair of bookends. So you've got John 21 account here, and, uh, and here in John 21, you've got the risen Jesus speaking to his disciples that have traveled with Jesus for the last three years. But I want to rewind now. Rewind the full three years right to the start of the story. I mentioned, didn't I? The disciples going, I've been here before. I remember this. I've been here before. Right to the start of the story, three years ago, we find a very similar account in Luke chapter 5. And it's in this account that Jesus is calling his first disciples. Luke chapter 5. In both Luke chapter 5 and in John chapter 21, we are in, in the same place. It's by the Sea of Galilee. In both accounts, the disciples are in a boat. In both, they've fished all night without success. In both, Jesus asks them to cast their nets in. In both, there is a miraculous catch of fish. It's the same location, same situation, same problem, same intervention, same result. But there is one difference. Peter's response. You see, in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, Peter falls at Jesus' knees and he cries, Go away from me, Lord. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But in John chapter 21, verse 7, Peter doesn't ask him to go away. Jesus jumps in the water and he runs as fast as he can to Jesus. Rather than wanting to run from Jesus, he runs to Jesus. And so why this difference? Well, the difference is Peter now understands the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, in Luke chapter 5, Peter is yet to be converted. He's yet to become a follower of Jesus. He's just a fisherman at this point. But in John chapter 21, he understands the grace of the gospel. That the determining factor in my relationship with God, the determining factor in your relationship with God, is not your past, but his past. Jesus' past, Jesus' self-substitutionary death upon the cross for you. I mean, what was Peter's past? A few days ago, he had denied Jesus three times, even though he swore, he said, I'll never deny you. Three times that same day, he denied him. 
But Peter now understands the gospel, that our relationship with God is not about our record, it's about his record. It's about Jesus' record. That Jesus is not our example, Jesus is our saviour. And Peter swims to Jesus because he knows he is a sinner. And yet he also knows that he is saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so if you are a sinner, and let me say this without condemnation, we are all sinners. I am the chief of sinners. If you are a sinner, if you've got stuff in your past that is holding you back, if, if, you, have, if you feel as if you've let Jesus down, then be like Peter. Run to Jesus. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to confess today that we are sinners. That day after day we let you down. And so we thank you that it's not about our record, it's about your work upon the cross. We thank you for the cross. And Lord, even right now, even right now in our homes, in this place, we are running back to you. We are jumping in the water and we are running back to you. Lord, we thank you for that act of running is the act of salvation. We thank you for your salvation found upon the cross. Lord, grow in us hearts of humility, obedience, and love. Give us eyes not only to see you, but to perceive you at work in our lives. Reveal yourself to us, Jesus. Reveal yourself to us. And as Moses prayed, so do we. So do we say, please, Lord, show us your glory. Lord, we just want to make space right now for anyone who feels like Peter, who feels far from you, Lord. We know that even right now you are welcoming home the prodigal sons and daughters. And Lord, you want your children to run towards you. So Lord, in this space we want to make a place for people to run towards you to say yes to you, Jesus, to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, saints, let me encourage you to stand for our closing song of worship.